ultimately the sound is almost irrelevant to the musical experience with the important caveat that what matters about the sound is the psychological processes it triggers in the mind of the listener. Mm -hmm. So it obviously plays an important role there, but um, what really matters is how it's being perceived and how it's being heard. So if there's something like the gestures that can change the perception, then you have changed the music because music is something that exists really only in the mind of the listener. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of my interview with Professor Michael Schutz. My next guest is Associate Professor of Music, Cognition, Percussion at McMaster University. Drawing on his interdisciplinary training in music, psychology, and computer science, he directs the Maple Lab, researching music, acoustics, perception, and learning. He also conducts the McMaster Percussion Ensemble and serves on faculty at the Honors Music Institute in Pennsylvania. Designated a university scholar in recognition of his innovative merging of music performance and perception, he has received the Ontario Early Researcher Award as well as numerous grants to support his research. He also received the 2019 Alumni Award from the Penn State School of Music. Prior to McMaster, he spent five years as Director of Percussion Studies at Longwood University, taught percussion at Virginia Commonwealth University, and performed frequently with symphonies. His TEDx talk, Death by Beep, is now available on the TED website, and I'll link to that in the show notes. His name is Michael Schatz, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about his suggestions on how to fix a very real problem happening right now in hospitals all over the world. As always, if you have questions for my guest, you're welcome to reach out through the links in the show notes. And if you have questions for me, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com, where you'll find a lot of ways to get in touch. Plus, subscribing to the newsletter will let you know when the new podcasts are available. And now, without further ado, here's my interview with Michael Schatz. Well, hi, Michael. Thank you so much for dropping by today. I really appreciate your joining me on the show. My pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. So I know that we have had a pre-conversation, so we've talked about a lot of stuff, and, and now I want to share that. <laughs> um, but one of the questions that I really wanted to ask you, and I've started asking people to begin off our, our discussions, is what early memory of sound do you have that moved you? Great question. Uh, there's two that came to mind that uh, when you asked me that. One, when I was really little, I remember getting home from school, my parents weren't there and I was sitting outside the house just dropping my lunchbox on, box on the ground because that's what we had then. And that seemed like a good idea. And the echo kicked off of, I didn't know what it was, but there was this echo off of a neighbor's house. And I just remember being very confused and fascinated at how the sound I was making sounded like it was coming from across the street. And I, I think I kept dropping it over and over until I probably broke the lunchbox. And I don't think my mom appreciated my explanation <laughs> of what was going on. Uh, and so that's the earliest time I remember being interested by sound. That's great. Yeah. I like that, that it intrigued you. It, it got you curious. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's... I don't know if that's where the sound interest came from or that's representative, but then I also remember the first time when I got my first drum set, which was a big moment, mm -hmm. big moment in my life. And it came with, uh, 
some roto sure for your parents too <laughs> yeah yeah for the whole neighborhood yes, the whole neighborhood noticed. exactly yeah. yeah and like one of the drums it's called the roto tom so it, you can change the pitch as you play it and like there was something about the sound of the one that just enthralled me and i would just sit there thwack thwack just listening to the way it changed and it there was something very intriguing about that. And I was older then, but I just remember uh, as a moment when I was thinking there's something really fascinating about these percussive musical sounds. Yeah, I find it really interesting that it, it's percussion and the echo around that and the tone of that that intrigued you. I, I've asked this of a lot of people and a lot of them have mentioned tones as opposed to percussion. percussion. So it's it's an interesting difference. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, so I don't know. There was something about it that's gripped me for a long time. Well, I mean, considering that you're a musician right now and your primary instrument is percussive, do you want to talk a little about your primary interest uh, interest in the instrument there? Yeah. So um, my interest in a lot of the research that we'll talk about actually came from my background in percussion. And it's a little different than the normal way you get involved in researching sound or designing medical devices. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've always been really interested in percussion and percussion performance. And that's been one of the things that I enjoy the most about uh, my career as it's developed. And so I got fascinated relatively late in the game about how the, the psychology plays an important role in the way music is conducted. And I realized that so many of the things we talk about when we're training to be musicians about how an audience hears our performance or about why a composer chooses certain notes to structure a piece in certain ways. It really all comes down to psychological questions. And I remember being in graduate school and this light bulb sort of went off and I realized basically a lot of the things that we spend a lot of time exploring as musicians are essentially, you can think about them as questions of psychology. And I had never thought about it that way. Musicians don't often talk about it in those terms. Uh, but I realized in some ways, musicians are avant-garde psychologists and we're constantly pushing the boundaries of like what we can hear or what we might want to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's a lot of insight into the sciences that can come from this intensive study of music that really involves the thing musicians understand, I think, better than anyone else. And that's listening to sound. Yeah, I love that. So is that how you got into talking about sounds in hospitals? Yeah, it's a winding road. <laughs> yeah, <I'll bet laughs> and <it> is. <laughs> uh, certainly I never would have thought uh, early on that just being curious about percussive sounds would get us here. And mm -hmm. so the brief sort of trajectory is that I was in a lesson with uh, my teacher when I was in graduate school. I studied with this guy named Michael Burrett, who's a renowned marimbist. And he was urging me to use larger movements while I was playing to show the audience what I wanted them to hear. And I remember at the time thinking, I don't really buy it because none of these movements are going to record. You know, if you're listening to a CD uh, or a podcast, you don't see the gestures that are involved in, in doing it. But the more that I thought about it, this guy is an amazing performer. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to study with him. And so it sort of sat in the back of my mind until I stumbled into this class where they showed me a demonstration called the McGurk effect. And that totally blew my mind. And if you've never seen it before, I encourage you to Google it. There's videos all over. What's your... Can you spell it? Uh, McGurk. M-C-G-U-R-K. Great. Okay. It so was people discovered can look by, it up. <laughs> yeah, it was discovered by accident in the mm -hmm. 70s. And basically, if you watch a video, you hear someone saying something. And if you close your eyes, you actually hear something different because the visual information doesn't just 
confuse you or, or raise some questions, it fundamentally changes what you're hearing. And I still remember being equally fascinated, that sort of nascent scientific part of me and the artistic part of me being deeply depressed that like my entire career rests on trusting my ears. And what I'm <laughs> seeing from this demonstration is that I can't. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I know in voice acting, for instance, if we make gestures, our voice follows. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of seems to me like if you're making those gestures on your instrument longer, larger, then the sound may actually have some kind of effect from that. Well, that's the great question. And that's where it becomes fascinating artistically about, well, how do we connect with an audience? And mm -hmm. can these things change what we're making for the sound? And musicians are always talking about metaphors. And if you think about some great conductors that I've worked with and the way they move shapes the way I play. And so their movements affect what the audience hears, even if it, they're not interacting with them directly. But here it turned out to be something completely different. So it boils down to a question of, can the movements actually change the sound itself? Because here, what I ended up doing in an experiment was trying to get into this very old question that percussionists have been arguing about for many, many years, probably since as long as we have had percussionists around. And that is whether if you use a longer movement when you strike the instrument or a shorter movement, are you going to create a note that's actually longer or shorter? And uh, people joke about it. People have been disagreeing about this for a long time. So the beauty to me of music psychology is that we could move beyond these speculations and actually get at some way of looking at what's really happening. Like, what is the truth? Yeah. So I designed my first ever experiment. I recorded my teacher <laughs> who graciously agreed to spend a long time playing single notes with a long gesture or a short gesture. And then I switched the sight and sound around. So in experiments, you're no longer bounded by reality. So I made these sort of implausible pairings of the sound from a short gesture with the movement from a long gesture and vice versa, did an experiment, did some analysis and came to a really shocking conclusion. So when you look at the sounds and you just analyze the acoustics, you don't get anything meaningfully different when you use a long gesture or a short gesture. But when you play them for participants in an experiment, the same note paired with a longer short gesture actually sounds longer or shorter. Oh. So it's like a musical version of that McGurk effect. So here, it's not just that the movements are changing the way I feel when I play, because they do. And uh, that's that's another thing we look at. But they actually change what you'll hear as an audience member. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really fascinating as someone who likes listening to music, because it shows that the audience actually has a role in the performance that they're hearing. Like the decisions you make will shape what you're experiencing. So if you open your eyes versus close your eyes, you're going to get something different at the concert. And we've done some other work showing how if you move along while you're listening, you're actually better at hearing certain aspects of the music. So I became intrigued by what I started thinking of as the role of the listener, which I have to admit, I wasn't entirely thrilled about because I like the idea that when I'm on stage, I'm in control of that experience. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it's humbling, but also fascinating to realize that it's essentially this sort of communicative contract between the performer and the audience. And hopefully what I'm doing affects their experience in a way that they like it. But what they're doing as well uh, has a role. And like I think about that when I'm evaluating students and auditions and our sort of juries, like our final exams or going to a concert. Like it's a different experience depending on what I'm doing as a listener. 
I know we're all dealing with a lot these days, so I really wanted to acknowledge those that have gone out of their way to leave an honest review of this podcast. Like Hazel, who writes, Great show, great selection of guests, and provides valuable insights about the sound industry. Thanks, Jody. Thanks so much for your kind words, Hazel. I'm really glad you're enjoying it. And for those of you that are interested, you can also leave a voice review now off of the main podcast page. It's super simple, and I'd love to hear what you think. Now, back to the show. It's really interesting psychologically that our different senses influence our other senses, that it all works together. <laughs> it, yeah. You know? yeah. And it's like, it's like I, I often feel like I'm torn in part between these two perspectives. Like part of me is fascinated by that. Part of me is sort of saddened by that because I like the idea as a musician that the sound is all that matters. And in a sense, that feels like it should be true. Like, mm -hmm. is this performer better than that one? Well, there's a number of factors, but it shouldn't come down to like the haircut that the performer has or the clothes they're wearing. Okay, but like, what about the way they move? Well, we actually have some research now showing that the movements that performers use in competitions um, has a direct, uh, seems to predict who's chosen as the winners in those competitions. And so it raises some interesting questions about what music is and what should be part of the, the training for music and what should be the way in which we evaluate it. Because ultimately, music is created for humans, by mm -hmm. humans. Yep. And so if this is the way the brain works, we can argue whether it should be that way or not. But the fact of the matter is, and this is it how is I got into way. the science, exactly. <laughs> our yeah. brains evolved in a world where using information from our eyes can help the kinds of processing we're doing with our ears. Mm -hmm. And so it's baked into the musical experience. And so I think it's good to embrace that because, you know, I might I would love to live in a world with no crime where we didn't have to lock our doors, don't have to worry about security thing. That'd be great. Wouldn't that be but, nice? Like not locking my car door <laughs> doesn't help us get to that world. It yeah. just means I'm living in a world where I have to walk because I have no car. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so like in a sense, yeah, I think it's good musically to recognize this is how the mind works and think about what kinds of things should we be teaching our students to successfully navigate this. And on one hand, this is sort of, it was for me a very new insight and for a lot of people new insight, but it's almost like arriving on the moon, thinking you're the first human there and then tripping over a bunch of beer cans. Because like, while I'm talking about how this is new and publishing about <laughs> it in journals, it's like you turn on the TV, it's pretty clear that musicians recognize in popular music context that this adds value to the concert. Like mm -hmm. there's a reason why when you buy a concert ticket, some of that money goes toward the smoke machine, the light display, like all this stuff. So it's like, yeah, we sort of knew this a while ago, Professor. Thank you. But it, it sort of puts it in new, living, vivid color. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And out of curiosity, have you discovered any of those particular gestures or performance tips that you give to your students to give a better performance when people are watching? Yeah. So basically, you can there's certain limitations of the marimba, which is the main instrument that I play in percussion. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a beautiful instrument. It can do many things very well. One thing we cannot do at all is control the duration of the note after we strike it. And there's different ways of dealing with this and some other techniques that composers use. But one thing I found through this research is that we can actually help shape what the audience is hearing from that by using the motions properly. So it's important to have an idea artistically about what you want to communicate. 
and then figure out the best way of making that communication happen. Yeah, it's it's a, a really fascinating study and, and having to understand the visual of it as well as the audio of it. And I think in a, in a lot of senses, the experiences that we have really need to be multisensory for them to truly touch us on a deep level. You know, it, I, like you were saying, when people move along with the music, that they, they tend to get more from it, that it, it tends to reach them on a deeper level. That's sort of like, you know, being in tune with your fellow human. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, the movements that we use while listening can actually make us hear the rhythms more accurately. Interesting. That's something we found. And some of my colleagues have done some fascinating work showing that it can shape the way we hear patterns, uh, even in very young infants. So I think sometimes the mistake I made uh, early on in, in thinking about what music is, is thinking that the sound is the music. And I've now come to realize that it's actually, <laughs> I was going to say, don't quote me on this, but I'm on a podcast. So I guess there's no way of <laughs> getting hard not around to. that. Yeah. But like, ultimately, the sound is almost irrelevant to the musical experience with the important caveat that what matters about the sound is the psychological processes it triggers in the mind of the listener. Mm -hmm. So it obviously plays an important role there, but um, what really matters is how it's being perceived and how it's being heard. So if there's something like the gestures that can change the perception, then you have changed the music because music is something that exists really only in the mind of the listener. And outside of our mind, it's a bunch of sound waves it's a bunch of air molecules bumping together <laughs> yeah so the magic happens between the ears sure yeah so where does this tie into sounds in a hospital you know i mean i i'm not sure it does yeah <laughs> but <laughs> great question so pretty far from where i started with that so <laughs> we started with a question about how i could be a better musician and then i did this experiment and found okay we can use these gestures meaningfully um, that's when I realized I had overlooked something really important. And at the time I had no scientific training really. And I had no idea that all the scientific research says that vision can affect our judgments of duration. It was really quite clear. And if I'd done a better job of reading the research literature ahead of time, I probably would have never done that study. So while I'm not advocating ignorance, a couple of times it can actually sort of pay off. <laughs> and so I started looking more deeply at what it is about the sounds here that are making this pattern that seems to be breaking with the other things that we've thought. And it turns out there's something really special about percussive sounds. And now a lot of the very detailed, careful experimental work on listening is done with what I call the tone beat, uh, that emergency broadcast sounds sort of like that emergency broadcast tone that just sort of turn on and then turn off. Um, it's very controlled. It's useful for a lot of reasons for experimental settings, but I mean, musically, I just think they sound horrible. Uh, and so I started looking into it and there's actually the shape of the sound of the marimba is really important. So scientists called this the amplitude envelope or the shape of the sound energy over time. And if you look at that in a sound editing program, it sort of looks like a doorstop, just a sound sort of descending down. And if you look at the sounds that are often used in research, it's more like a rectangle or a trapezoid. They just turn on and stay on and then go off. And it turns out this difference in the shape of the amplitude envelope is really, really important. And so we started doing some experiments to see what happens when you run the kinds of things that we know how they should turn out with sounds that have a different shape. And it turns out that some of the theories and models and predictions that we've made based on sounds with that flat shape don't actually apply to more complicated sounds, like the sound of the marimba 
or sounds used in music. And as it turns out, when you look at the sounds in the world, we don't really hear that many beeps. I mean, they're in devices and other things. And so this got me into this scientific issue of well, what are the sounds we should be using in research? Because it goes back to my background. It, it all comes from the music side. And I want to know how sound works in music. And if all these experiments are using sort of terrible sounds that have nothing to do with music, and they give us results that are different, like they're saying, hey, there's no way vision can affect uh, the note duration, then I think there's a lot of interesting and important work to be done in picking that apart, which gets us a step closer to answering your astral question. This is the problem with professors. <laughs> sure. We yeah. can talk for a long time. <laughs> That's okay. That's what podcasts are for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We spent six hours recording to get the 10 minutes. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. So <laughs> We're getting that, closer. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so that gets us sort of like halfway towards the medical device thing. Mm -hmm. So over the past uh, decade, my team has done a lot of really interesting work on our perception of sound in various contexts. And sometimes we sort of redo traditional experiments and see how the outcomes differ if we use sounds that are more like a marimba with what I call a percussive shape that decay versus the flat sounds. Uh, we've also done a survey of over a thousand auditory experiments to try and get a sense of what kinds of sounds are being used in auditory research. And technical details aside, the basic answer is flat sounds are what rule the world of auditory perception. Uh, there's some areas of the community where they're doing sounds, looking at sounds in more sophisticated ways. But in a representative sample of a thousand experiments drawn from a top journal, we find a really, really disproportionate focus on the simple sounds. That's really, that's disappointing, actually. Wouldn't they? Uh, well, I guess they're scientists, not musicians. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it comes down to, it's like a, almost like politics, a question of like competing values. Mm -hmm. So if you're designing an experiment, one of the worst mistakes you could make, the greatest sin you could make as an experimental psychologist is failing to control for a confound, thinking you found one thing, but overlooking some complexity. So the best example of this that's in almost every introductory psych textbook uh, comes from this horse known as Clever Hans that you might have heard of if you ever took intro psych. Clever Hans, like over a century ago, fascinated audiences by being able to apparently do basic math. And so you'd say, Hans, what's three plus four? And he taps. Whoa, amazing, seven. You know, what's six minus two? You better know these things. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. Yeah. Hans might be more clever. Uh, yeah. Hans is clever than we are. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> example. Let's edit that part out. Uh, oh, no, no, no. I love it. That's good. Yeah, yeah. It's all Oops. good. <laughs> so um, with Hans, the, the thing is, he couldn't do math. Horses don't have the brain for it. What happens mm -hmm. is he could read people fairly well. So if you know the answers too, you lean forward until he does two taps and then you lean back and start cheering. Uh -huh. And so once more controlled experiments were done, it became clear what was happening. And it seems like the guy who was bringing Hans around on these circuits genuinely believed in the amazing abilities of his horse. And it wasn't just some show. It's he was actually confused. And so I think it's a great example of what happens when you fail to control for a confound here. You're not getting the answer to the question that you thought you were getting. Mm -hmm. So I think that lesson has been learned very well and very deeply uh, by experimental psychologists where you do everything possible to avoid a confound. Now, sounds are complicated. That's one reason why they're beautiful and musicians love complicated sounds. But if you're running an experiment, there's a real problem with a complicated sound 
And if you're trying to get the same sound to use over and over, like having someone sing a note is not a great approach because it's always going to be a little different. And, you know, the room's going to be different. You'll have different reverberations. So from a scientific standpoint, a tone beep is a beautiful thing. It's very controlled. You can use the same sound in any lab all over the world, and you're not going to miss, uh, miss some important confound. Unfortunately, though, it becomes problematic when it misses some of the things that the auditory system does. And we evolved in a world with really complicated sounds where those complicated sounds will actually have a lot of meaning. So like if you hear footsteps of someone walking, like we know a lot about that event. I mean, you might not think about it offhand, but you can tell, you know, something about the material that they're walking on. Is it grass or is it marble? Like what kind of shoes are they wearing? High heels sound very different than sneakers. We can actually <laughs> <Very> recognize <true. laughs> yeah, the gender of walkers and mm -hmm. a lot of information based on that pattern. And so it turns out the perceptual system is actually great at dealing with the complexity of sounds. And so when we strip sounds down to their most simplistic, we get results that might not map onto what the auditory system is actually able to do. So for example, when you use a simple sound, it looks like sight and sound don't get bound together. When you use the sound of the marimba along with this impact motion, turns out the brain processes it in a different way. And so without necessarily meaning to, I, I've sort of worked myself into this very bizarre position within the auditory world of like, like being a self-proclaimed audio geek while also sort of pointing out, well, I don't know if we're actually, my fellow audio geeks are studying this, you know, in the way that we necessarily want to. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio dash branding dash strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website and I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while, totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now back to the podcast. I know that you have given us an example of like a, a regular tone and one that you've worked with. It seems to me, and, and we'll put that, you know, we'll, we'll uh, let people hear that. And it seems to me that the, the one that, well, I don't know if you created it or if someone else created it, but uh, it seems that it has a, more of a decay. So like the echo and then you hear the decay of the sound as opposed to just the simple tone, which just starts and stops. Mm -hmm. So is that the difference that is needed for this experiment to work? <laughs> yeah. So that's, and that's the million dollar question is, so a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm looking at all this data because we run all these experiments, we've got all this stuff. And it's very clear something extremely different is happening in the processing when the sounds are shaped one way versus another way. So yeah, then I was trying to figure out what is the aspect that matters. And yeah, I think that decay, that offset is really important. 
Now, we know that decay can tell us a lot about the event. Like that's what helps us determine if, you know, the materials that were involved or, or what actually happened in that impact. So I've sort of become, without meaning to, the expert in the percussive sound world, which is sort of hilarious because then when I talk to my friends from way back in music school before I'd ever taken psychology, and it's like, well, what are you doing now? It's like, well, in addition to the concerts, I'm like researching percussive sounds. It's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, it's a good question. <laughs> and yeah. And so the way this got to the medical devices, then it's a long sort of journey is so now I've become like the percussion sound guy. And we've done some experiments showing that it's actually easier to associate sounds with objects that we pair arbitrarily when they have a percussive shape versus a standard flat shape. Now, this came from a conversation with a colleague at the memory research, because I'm always just interested in what happens if we throw in the percussive sounds to this experiment. And uh, she helped me design this really cool paradigm. Bottom line is it was easier to associate percussive sounds with objects than the flat sounds. So from that, I got in touch with a medical doctor at Vanderbilt University who is very interested in improving the auditory alarms in medical devices. And I was amazed to learn that there's some real challenges there because there's all these sounds that have been designed to convey important information to medical staff that are often really hard to remember. And we have all these experiments showing that they're difficult to learn, hard to retain. They tend to cover up one another or mask one another in the operating room. Yeah, and that would be the thing I would be worried yeah, about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this is something I think sort of gets to everyone because at some point it's, it's likely we'll spend some time in the hospital. And mm -hmm. so if I'm there under the knife, I want to make sure that everyone in that room has the best information they can so that I never have to see them again. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of work now on, okay, can we make the alarms go off at different times? Do we maybe need fewer alarms? Could we send them to another room to have someone monitor them? But curiously, there's very little research, very little looking at the actual sounds used in these alarms. Now, I never went to med school and I can barely have my blood taken without passing out. So I am not working on the medical side of this problem. I'm working on what happens after the device triggers a warning. And here, when you look at the sounds, lo and behold, they're almost all those flat tone beeps. And so I realized there's actually a great opportunity to apply my love of being a sound geek to actually improve the experience in these hospitals. And not just the experience of patients who are you know, annoyed by the sound and sometimes have trouble sleeping because of all the sound noise, but actually help the doctors understand these things better. Because the FDA done, has done a survey where they found that over a four-year window, there are actually 566 deaths that trace back to problems with these sounds. Oh, wow. That's, that's scary. It is. <sighs> uh, and I mean, a hospital is an inherently a somewhat dangerous place in that people are there for these important of operations. Course, yeah. There's many reasons why things will go wrong, but like, it just seemed like death by beep. Like this seems like something I can help with, uh, which is why. Yeah. Hence your TED talk. Hence my TED talk. Yeah. Which, yeah. and my mom emailed me when it came out and ever supportive. She said, oh, this is great. I can finally tell my friends you are the kind of doctor that helps people. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I was like, okay, thanks mom. Finally. I know. Finally. Finally. <laughs> Not just it's a bunch like, of percussion instruments. Yeah. It's like when someone says, actually, <laughs> that's one of those other words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how this like improbable journey from like trying to just focus on being the best musician I could leads to a situation 
where I can actually use auditory knowledge, you know, musical knowledge to save lives. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking, so I've become sort of interested, or some people will say obsessed with like how is sound structured. And so one thing we've done is just get sounds from different instruments because I think musicians are these great avant-garde psychologists and have spent many, many hours and many decades and centuries figuring out what works with sound. And if we think, start to think about the problem with the sounds in hospitals as an issue of auditory communication, then if we think music is many things and putting the wonderful artistic and meaningful communi- you know, uh, emotional aspects aside for a moment, it gets hard to imagine a better domain as a playground for figuring out what does and does not work in auditory communication than the millions of hours we spent as humanity on solving this problem in music. Totally true. Yeah. So if you look at instrument manufacturers, they are deeply invested in what sounds good in that basic tone of an instrument. Musicians spend hundreds, if not thousands of hours of practice devoted in particular on developing the best sound. I mean, I have, I don't know, hundreds of mallets here (laughs) uh, because each one gives a slightly different sound and I can, you know, strike the instrument in 18 different nuanced ways because Mm -hmm. the sound mattered. So when you come from the world of music, you're deeply enmeshed in the importance of sound. And sometimes it feels almost offensive. Where then in this system of design sound in hospitals, where we could use any sound available to man, it's like we've intentionally chose what I think of is like the worst, simplest, most awful sound, basically pushing the limits of the envelope of sound creation in 1953 or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. And so the medical technology has advanced, fortunately, incredibly over the past half century. But the sounds seem to be stuck with these limitations that, you know, went out of date decades ago. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time.